Jesus paid the penalty against God's justice for the sins of every person who would ever believe in him. And the gospel promises you not only God's forgiveness, but his power to change. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what defines your identity? Is it your gender, your sexuality, or your moral character? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 10 of Trending versus Truth, exploring the biblical response to various moral issues that are trending, including gender, sexuality, morality, and social justice issues. Today, Tom will look at the early church and the Apostle Paul's teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit regarding gender and sexuality. You might be surprised to discover that the early church struggled with many of the same issues our culture is today, and yet they relied on the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for true change. Do you believe Jesus can change the heart of a sinful person? Let's join Tom right now for more on The Word Unleashed. You remember that because of paganism, God three times here in, our, in this text says that God gave them over. In verse 24, he gave them over to sexual sin. In verse 26, he gave the culture over to homosexuality. In verse 28, he adds this, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. What's a depraved mind? A lot of people think that means sinning. No. People have always sinned. People have always committed these sins. What's a depraved mind? Go down to verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God through the substance of the law written on the heart, Romans 2, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, notice this, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Literally, the Greek text reads this way. This makes it so clear. Listen to this. Not only these things they are doing, but rather also they are approving those who practice. Folks, this is the essence of a depraved mind. A person not only chooses to continue sinning, but affirms sin in himself and others as good. That's what's going on. Those are the cultural expressions primary cultural expressions in our day. Now next, number four, let's consider the spiritual foundations. What is the source of this? We've talked about on the societal level, but individually, what are the primary heart issues that lie behind the acceptance of the tenets of gender theory? Let me give you two of them, because I want to be fair in this issue. First of all, one of the issues is experiencing developmental confusion. We live in a fallen world. We live in fallen bodies. And that affects everything, including our, our bodies. It affects our perceptions, our minds. Romans 8 says the whole creation groans under the effect of the fall. Sadly, one effect of the fall is that they tell us one person in every 5,000 is born with external reproductive structures that may be ambiguous in their appearance. Not chromosomes, but external structures. Of course, such people require care and compassion and help. 
But I'm talking about even those who are born clearly biologically male or female can still at times be confused about themselves. This often happens before puberty and usually resolves with puberty and the male or female hormones that are injected into the body during that stage of life. A variety of factors may contribute to this, factors such as genetic issues, circumstances in the home, pornography, sexual abuse, another traumatic event of some kind, rejection and loneliness, a desire for attention and acceptance, or today it's huge, the influence of peers and online groups. Another factor that can be behind this, this confusion, is the unnecessary tension caused by artificial cultural standards of masculinity and femininity. We can inadvertently force our children into superficial cultural expectations. For example, the colors pink and blue. You understand those are a fabulous marketing ploy to get you to buy more children's clothes than one set. But in the past, families often chose neutral colored children's clothes so they didn't have to buy two sets. But pink and blue has stuck. I hate to tell you this, but as an adult male, yes, I have in my closet and wear blue shirts and pink shirts. There's nothing wrong with blue and pink. The same thing, though, holds true for certain kinds of behavior. Just because a male enjoys dressing nicely, is artistic, is gentler and kinder than his peers, enjoys conversation, all of that doesn't mean he's gender confused. And just because a female doesn't like dressing in frilly dresses but enjoys sports and being outside, that doesn't mean she's gender confused. You remember Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25 verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. And you know the story, Esau was close to his father and Jacob was close to his mother. But in the text, both are called men. They weren't gender confused. So I'm not saying that we should ignore all cultural markers of masculinity and femininity. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, first part of that chapter, I think Paul calls us to do it just that, and that is to embrace some of those cultural markers. But those markers don't define what it means to be male or female. The second spiritual foundation or source is the more common and the more culpable, and it's rebelling against God's Word and His sovereign decision of one's biological sex. Jesus, in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, affirms the creation account and that God made all humanity male and female. This is Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Have you not read, Jesus said, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a very complicated chapter, and I'm not going to get into the first part of it. I think it does have to do with cultural markers in your society of masculinity and femininity. But I want you to go down to verse 15. Uh, Let's start at verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I don't think Paul is saying that 
you know, we ought to break out a ruler and every woman's hair should be shorter than every man's hair or that a certain style is, is what she must wear. I agree with what Frank Thielman writes when he says this about this text. Although the norms of appropriate hairstyle and dress may vary from culture to culture, Paul's point is that men should look like men in that culture and women should look like women in that culture rather than seeking to deny or disparage the God-given differences between the sexes." End quote. But folks, Scripture doesn't just affirm all humanity is two sexes or genders. It also points out that God is personally involved in determining the sex of each person. God was personally involved in determining your sex or gender. God decided whether you would be male or female. Psalm 139, verse 13. David is rehearsing what happened to him in the womb, and he says this, God, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. God determined whether you would be one of those, which of those two sexes you would be, male or female. That was God's decision. And to reject that is ultimately to reject God's right to make that decision. What are the biblical implications? How do we respond? First of all, if you've never repented and believed in Him and you are involved in committing these sins, you need to understand that if you are enslaved to these sins, and Jesus said the one who commits sin is a slave of sin. All of us were enslaved to sin at one point or another. You're not alone in that. But if you're enslaved to these sins, God can change you. He can forgive you and change you. It's a sin that can be forgiven by God's grace because of Jesus' death in the place of sinners on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty against God's justice for the sins of every person who would ever believe in Him. And the gospel promises you not only God's forgiveness, but His power to change. But forgiveness and change, Jesus taught, are only possible when we repent and we believe. Let me explain those terms. First of all, repentance is being genuinely sorry for your thoughts and actions that are contrary to what God demands of you and a genuine desire to change. So genuinely sorry and a genuine desire to change doesn't mean you can change yourself. It means you have a desire to change and you're open for God to do that. That's repentance. Now, when it... When, when it comes to gender, what that means is this. You must acknowledge your thoughts and efforts against your biological sex are a sin against your Creator. You must accept His decision to have made you male or female. You must renounce your right to determine who you are and submit to His right to decide who you are. And this is not just true with gender, but every other sin. Faith in Jesus Christ means you must not only believe the facts about Him in the New Testament, but you must confess Him as your Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. You will be rescued. You will be forgiven. The Bible teaches that true peace, shalom, wholeness only come from a saving relationship with your Creator. It's not going to be found in trying to change who you are. You can only know Him through spiritual salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and becoming a new creation that Jesus promises to make of you if you will repent and believe in Him. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not committing these sins, and you're proud, and you essentially say, you're congratulating yourself to say, well, 
These aren't my categories. This isn't my issue. Preach it, Tom. Let me tell you, there's a real problem. Jesus told a story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, in which he compared a Pharisee and a tax collector. The tax collector humbled himself, admitted his sin, sought God's forgiveness, and Jesus said he went down to his house justified. The Pharisee said, God, thank you that I'm not like that. And Jesus said he went down to his house condemned. So whatever your sin may be, it may not be these, it's enough to damn you. And if you don't repent of it, that's exactly what will happen. You need to repent and believe in Christ as well. Let me move on to professing believers. Professing believers. First of all, if you're tempted by these sins I've been talking about this morning, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Listen, what you're facing, it's a real temptation. It's also a common temptation. People have always experienced that temptation. But don't let that temptation or your propensity, your inclination toward that sin define you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not what defines you. What defines you is Jesus Christ. And what he wants is for you to be just like him in your moral character. So get help. We're here to help you. The church is a hospital. So let us do that. Let others who care about you help you deal with this sin struggle in your life. Number two, if you're a professing believer and you are committing these sins, but you are completely unrepentant, if you've basically said, you know what, I give up. It's who I am. I'm just going to keep doing this. God will forgive me. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're not getting in. Do not be deceived. Don't let anybody talk you into some other story. Neither fornicators, that's premarital sex without repentance, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's the Greek word for the the passive side of the homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, that's the Greek word for the active side, the partner in the homosexual relationship, and he goes on to list other things, will inherit the kingdom of God. No one who willfully, without repentance, goes on practicing these sin patterns is a believer. So I don't care what prayer you prayed or what aisle you walked, if you are unrepentant and you are content to walk in these patterns of sin, then you're not a Christian. I plead with you to turn from that sin to Christ. Number three, what do you do if unbelievers in your life engage in these sins? Turn to Titus chapter three. This is what we all face. How do we respond to the people around us? Titus three, Paul begins by saying, Titus, there's some things I want you to remind your the people in the churches of. And what he says in verse 2 is, I want you to be respectful and compassionate toward people who are captured in all kinds of sins. They're made in the image of God. They deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. First of all, he says, don't be verbally abusive to them. Malign no one. Be gracious to them. And then he says, don't be argumentative or antagonistic. Be peaceable. Verse 2, he goes on to say, don't be harsh be gentle. And then he says, showing every consideration for all men. The the word essentially means be courteous. Be courteous. And that brings us to a second point he makes, and that is be humble. Be humble. Not only be respectful and compassionate, but verse 3, be humble. 
because we also were once foolish ourselves. Listen, remember that they're enslaved to their sin just as you were once enslaved to yours. And you may not understand their sin, but you understand the power of enslaving sin because every one of us has been there. Thirdly, be honest. Be honest about your sin and theirs. Notice what Paul says to Titus. He doesn't pull any punches. We were and they are disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. So when you talk about your sins, don't pull any punches. And when you talk about theirs, don't pull any punches either. Don't give in to the culture. This is, this is them just like it was you. And we need to be honest. And then fourthly, share the gospel. Verses 4 through 8, he saved us. Stress repentance, submission to Jesus as Lord, Christ's power to change the heart. A moment ago, I quoted 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, where it says those committing these things without repentance are not Christians. I love verse 11, which says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. There were Christians in the church in Corinth who used to be practicing homosexuals, but whom God had changed. They were living lives of sexual purity, either in celibacy or in heterosexual marriage. By the way, Christians, there's an important point for us here. Those involved in LGBTQIA+, they are not the enemy. They're the mission field. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the enemy is the devil. He's the one who's enslaved them just like he once enslaved us. Now, I want to briefly answer a couple of questions that I get all the time from people because I know these are in your minds. So let me do that. First of all, first question, how should I respond when a transgender person asks me to call them by a name distinctive to the opposite sex? Bob wants to be called Sue. Well, the elders and I are in full agreement that since a name is merely a label, we can call people by whatever name they choose, even if their intention is to make a statement about their sexuality. So I don't have any problem calling Bob Sue if that's what he wants to be known as because it's a label. Now, I don't mean to make light of this, but when I was growing up, you know, Johnny Cash wrote a song called A Boy Named Sue. And, you know, that was unfortunate in that day, but I don't have any problem using whatever label a person wants to use, and I don't think you should either. Second question, how should I respond when asked to use the pronouns of the opposite biological sex? Bob wants to be called she or they. Pronouns have been historically used and are still used most often to identify a person's birth sex. That means to refer to a person with pronouns contrary to birth sex contradicts the truth regardless of that person's self-described gender identity. Now, I understand some Christians justify this using both name and pronouns requested they say it's, it's compassionate, it's gracious. They say it's acceptable because the transgender person is not using the pronouns to refer to their birth sex, but to their chosen gender identity. I understand all of that, but folks, I have to say, God never contradicts the truth. And I don't believe that we as his people should either. We shouldn't go along with their self-deception and refer to them by pronouns that contradict the truth. So what do you do? In some cases, maybe your job's at stake on this issue. I suggest you simply don't use pronouns at all. I mean, you don't need to be throwing it in their face every day in every way that you disagree with them. You need to make it clear what you believe, but you don't need to do that. And so just call them their chosen name, whatever that is. You don't have to use pronouns. 
But if you do have to use pronouns, then I think we should use the ones that represent their birth sex. Third question, should I attend a same-sex wedding? Now, you're going to have to make that decision before the Lord. I understand that. There's no chapter and verse. But as you make that decision, I do want you to consider two facts that a lot of people forget. Number one, it's not a wedding, and the result is not a marriage. It's unlike, say, a wedding between two unbelievers. That does initiate a marriage, a good thing that God himself created. But that's not true when both are the same sex. Jesus made it clear that a man and a woman, that was the divine intention, that they would become one flesh. And so let me say this as kindly but as directly as I can. God approves nothing about that relationship or that ceremony. Second thing you need to keep in mind is those who attend a wedding, at least this was true in the past, are agreeing to the marriage and serving as witnesses of the vows. The language in most Christian weddings, which comes from the Book of Common Prayer, asks anyone who objects to speak or forever hold his peace. If you don't object, you're affirming the marriage. The clear implication is that all of those who are there are both witnesses and affirming the goodness and validity of this marriage. So keep those things in mind as you weigh this decision. A fourth implication for professing believers What do you do if professing believers in your life engage in these sins without repentance? And the answer is Matthew 18. Practice the steps given in Matthew 18. And I've preached a sermon on that. You can go online and listen. Number five, if you're a parent, what do you do if you're a parent? Again, I'm just going to give you the list. Pray and trust God. Psalm 127 is about parenting, and it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You better pray that God will be at work in the lives of your kids and trust Him to do so. Number two, gently address and correct developmental confusion. Number three, put reasonable safeguards in place. Safeguards for what? To protect your kids from predators, to protect them in some cases from their peers who would sin against them in these ways, and from the internet, the worst of the internet. I don't understand parents who let their kids use all the technology with zero protections to protect those kids from what's out there. Protect them. Number four, warn them about gender theory and teach them God's truth about gender at an age-appropriate level. Can I just say, if you're concerned, your children have been exposed to far more than you can even imagine, so don't be naive. You need to address this from the Scripture. Number five, keep the gospel central keep bringing them back to the fact that we're all sinners and we all, apart from grace, deserve hell and our only hope is Jesus Christ. Number six, if your children are sinning in these ways, and I know that's true in some cases, what do you do? If they're still in the home, then don't allow them to express their sin just like you wouldn't with any other sin. Secondly, if they're out of the home, don't facilitate their sin. Thirdly, continue to love them and accept them as your child. They're always going to be your child however they choose to sin. So don't cut them off. 1 Corinthians 5 about not associating with any so-called brother is about how we practice church discipline in the context of the church. It means don't keep them in the church. Don't treat them as a Christian. It doesn't mean you should shun your child. Number four, graciously confront their sin and share the gospel with them. And number five, never stop loving, never stop praying, and never stop sharing the gospel at appropriate times. Folks, the story isn't over till it's over. 
I love the story of the thief on the cross. Here's a man raised in a good home, a good Jewish home where he was taught about God, who became a terrorist, who killed people. But within about four hours of his death, he came to trust in the true God and in his son, Jesus Christ. So don't ever give up. And then finally, number seven, if you're a Christian, celebrate God's design of male and female. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of his series titled Trending Versus Truth. Join us next time for part 11. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.